0: Welcome to the Odyssey Podcasts. This is Jean Cavellos, Director of the Odyssey Writing Workshop's Charitable Trust. The Odyssey Writing Workshop is an intensive six week program for writers of fantasy, science fiction, and horror whose work is approaching publication quality and for published writers who want to improve their work. Odyssey is held each summer on the campus of St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire. Adult writers from all over the world apply. Only 15 are admitted. Top authors, editors, and agents serve as guest lecturers. For more information, visit www.odysseyworkshop.org. Podcast 70 is an excerpt from Adam Troy Castro's lecture at Odyssey 2013 on writing the middle grade novel. The text of this recording is copyright 2013 by Adam Troy Castro. The sound recording is copyright 2013 by Odyssey Writing Workshops Charitable Trust.
1: I've written six books. I'm almost finished with the six books in the Gustav Bloom series. And uh, I can tell you that I don't make any special concerns that it's re- being written for a child. I don't try to make it simpler. I don't try to make it gentler. Um, I try to make sure that, although it is the minor spoiler to say, everything turns over right at the end of the six books. Um, No, it does not end with with Gustav, an alcoholic in some alley somewhere. It doesn't doesn't end with any of that stuff. I do make sure that uh, the danger is real, that uh, the consequences are real, that the emotions are strong. And that there is a reason to care and there's a reason to worry throughout. I wanted to be clear that they're facing actual evil, and that if the actual evil gets its way, the circumstances for them will be fatal, if not worse. Um, kids appreciate this. Dorothy was in genuine peril throughout The Wizard of Oz. And Harry Potter was dealing with a noseless fascist. You know, it was, these were real dangerous things that these people were dealing with. And this is why adults love the same stories. Kids like the stories to have serious stakes. They have a very strong nose for bullshit. If you are being gentle with them, they think it's lame. I will say that the rules that governed my story are not necessarily the same rules that will govern yours. Middle grade, we're not talking about a genre. We're talking about a market segment. Um, And in the case of my story, it's a very uh, whimsy-driven story with lots of magic, lots of miracles, a physics that in some cases is made up as I go along. Um, And your middle grade fiction, if you write one, could be set in a very concrete world with very concrete consequences uh, Paolo Bacigalupi wrote a series about, a, uh, about children children in the scarcity driven future who must survive by uh, scavenging iron from shipwrecks so you're not going to have a magical being show up in the middle of that and provide the help that these kids need you're not so the rules are completely different in terms of the physics of the story but there are some general things that you can look for that I'm going to be talking about uh, first thing I'll say is um, why write middle grade, and middle grade is considered a new, a new market segment. Although children's books have always existed, it's it's really from about nine to thirteen age. Uh, a middle grade book, if written correctly, can be read to uh, kids who are pre-readers, and uh, will be read if you're very lucky by adults. Uh, who enjoy the innocence and the fun and the magic of it, uh, because maybe you're able to pitch a few jokes at a higher level. But that is the the people that you're talking to. And it means that the characters in the story must be that age as well. This does not mean that every book with a character of that age is a middle-grade novel. To Kill a Mockingbird features uh, middle-grade characters. It's not a middle-grade novel. It's clearly a book that's written on an adult level. Um, it's a very fast-growing market segment. Again, if you want to know what's hot, uh, go to the uh, bookstores while they exist. I can tell you that the advances are relatively high for most of the major publishers. A starting science fiction novel, if you are considered just a, um, a midlist writer... You may get something as low as uh, $5,000. Actually, there are a couple publishers, and I'm talking about mainstream publishers, that will go two or $3,000. That's just not a lot for four months' work or six months' work or whatever you did. A middle-grade novel can be, uh, just on a, and a publisher that doesn't have a lot of money, can be three times that much. Middle-grade novel also has the advantage, and this is a sneaky, <laughs> kind of writerly advantage. A middle-grade novel tends to be about 40,000 words. So if you're earning... <laughs> If you're earning uh, your advance for three novels of uh, 40,000 words and each advance is two or three times the size of a science fiction novel, figure it out. You're being paid three times for writing three novels, which equal in word count and in work, uh, a full-length novel. Doesn't mean as a work of literature, it's, it's equivalent to those three, but in terms of making a living, if you can get a good middle grade series going, it's helpful. You can do a few couple of those a year and it is, it is a positive thing. It's also artistic reasons. Uh, it's a challenge that you can find quite interesting, uh, writing a story that captures uh, many of the childlike concerns and as opposed to childish concerns. Uh, there's nothing that feels more free than knowing that your uh, audience is is going to be very accepting as long as you get them past the first disbelief. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, and I'll also say this, if you think science fiction fans are enthused, if you think Twilight fans are enthused, wait till you meet a child for whom your book is the second book they've ever read. that is just the best feeling in the whole world, and if you're lucky enough to fall into that situation, I promise you, just, just one conversation with such a fan will be one of the greatest experiences of your life. So it's a positive thing to do. Um... Again, the audience you're writing for can process such premises as danger, physical harm, loss, and even death. But the filter that allows an adult to watch the most gory uh, horror movie in the world and either just be scared in a fun way or yell "cool" is frequently absent in a child. So uh, it helps. It helped in my case. You can use a different um, to distance a little bit in the form of humor. My characters tend to joke a lot in the in the face of danger. They're about to be threatened with uh, an eternity of slavery in the world of Lord Obsidian, and uh, gee, that won't be—I won't like that at all. You know, just it's a little bit of distancing. Um, there was a lot of humor again in Wizard of Oz, and Harry Potter was at times hilarious and it doesn't make it feel not real. It does, help, it does help put the story in the frame that you want it for, for many of these children. And this is a very important rule, and I wrote a big thing on it, and, uh, and this is going to sound like a silly rule, but I'm 100% serious. Process the talking hippos quickly. So let's, let's talk about this. Um, you have a scene where your 10-year-old child is sitting out in front of their house, and a talking hippo, ambulatory, um, bipedal hippo, walks by in a tutu, wearing a top hat with a cane, just comes walking down the street and says, uh, excuse me, young man, where are directions to the nearest delicatessen? And this is um, three blocks that way, and the hippo says, thank you, and moves on. The point is that your character should be able to process that this is an unusual event and and possibly also doubt the evidence of his or her own senses. But one of the character traits that you are very much trying to convey is innocence. As a child, everything is new to you, and you're open to the premise of a talking hippo more than you would be as a a 20-year-old, or even a 15-year-old. Um, I, I talked to some of you last night about my kitten uh, that, I got, that I found last year. We had to have dinner with people at a cafe at a casino. We took the kitten with us. And this two-week-old kitten was in this loud place. Was watching loud people run by, drunk people walking by, uh, yelling, laughing. Uh, the uh, slot machines were making an incredible din. And the times we took the kitten out of the bag, we put them on the the coffee table that we sat with in the lobby, and the kitten just would walk back and forth and just look at everything. And the kitten took it in. It didn't know the rules for life yet. This incredibly overwhelming scene of sensory overload was just interesting. Oh, is this what it's going to be like for a while? I can take that. Now, take that same cat now, who's a year and a half, yeah. Plop it down in a, in a hotel lobby, and your, your your clothes are going to be shredded. Because the cat does not have the same ability to process that which is unusual. So you apply this to your fictional creation. Uh, Dorothy Gale of Kansas, from uh, Wizard of Oz, was, uh, was five years old. She wasn't the 16-year-old uh, of the movie. And she got carried away by a tornado, and she got into situations involving a witch a talking uh, ambulatory uh, bipedal uh, lion, a uh, scarecrow, a friendly scarecrow, a, a tin man, all those characters. And she recognized that it was strange, but she took it in stride. She said, oh, well, that's strange. 30 seconds of adjustment, and I can appreciate that now. I can deal with this. But by comparison, John Carter of Mars, a grown man, had to be pretty much forced to... Believe what was happening to him, that he was on a a planet with Tharks and things like that. Um, Because he doubted his sanity. He had time to doubt his sanity. So, this is one way of conveying the innocence right away. I can accept this, I can believe this, move on to the next thing. Um, The more disbelief your character shows, generally the older they seem. It's also possible for your character to be so credulous and accepting they seem like a little moron. So, if the character seems to believe things too easily, uh, you you throw in a couple of exclamations of disbelief or argument. Uh, in, In the case of the Gustav Gloom series, what do you mean you're a talking shadow? There's no such thing as talking shadows. Well, clearly there are. This one's a talking shadow. Yeah, but I've never seen one before. Immediately, by the second line of dialogue, integrating it into her belief system because clearly the evidence shows otherwise. Innocence also works with some of the concepts you're dealing with if they're too difficult for children. Again, I know a couple of you have read Gustav Gloom. There is um, a character called the people taker. As far as I'm concerned, he's a very nasty serial killer. He kidnaps people, adults and children, Tortures them to death. This is in a middle grade novel. Well, I don't call him a serial killer at any point in the novel. I know he's a serial killer, and if you're an adult reading the book, you know you'll be able to figure out he's a serial killer. This guy is very much turned on by the idea of capturing and torturing the little girl uh, who's the protagonist of the book to death. These are very ugly images, but I do not need to capture them in forensic detail. Uh, the only necessary thing children need to know is that this guy takes people from their lives does bad things to them and that they are never seen again kid can understand this is a very evil person and that uh, you don't want Fernie to be captured by him but doesn't need to know anything else doesn't need to know it what he would need to know in a Thomas Harris novel, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, saying that he takes people is enough. Uh, kids conjure whatever awfulness they want. In writing your story, uh, you will run into places where uh, your instincts will guide you into going further than you, than your conscience tells you you should. That you want to provide some detail that may be a little bit too adult or a little bit too complex or a little bit too explicitly horrifying for your audience. My answer is this: Do it anyway. Don't censor yourself. Get what you need down. If you get the story down on paper, there's a wonderful thing called an editor, and that person is your reality check. So in, in those cases, just get it down on paper. That was that's that's the next rule. Um. In a children's book, dialogue and action drive the story. You can get away with things in terms of dialogue driving exposition that you can't get away with in, a, in an adult novel um, because uh, kids need to have things explained to each other, um, and that's and that's fine. They tend to talk over a lot more of what they're going through, and that's a good thing. They tend to yammer back and forth a little bit more in like a sentence or two. Um, they're not very long-winded, or if they are, the other kids get excited and start shutting them up. Um, And again, please, you can process the talking hippos quickly As long as they can talk about what's happening to them And trying to figure it out That's fun, because they, in a children's book uh, That's precisely the process that the kids reading the book are going to be doing Um, I'm going to give you a list of uh, story elements to avoid in in middle grade fiction And and, uh, young adult fiction, and I think adult fiction as well these are my prejudices. These are things that you actually can get away with. I'm trying to influence you to not put these in your fiction because I think they're, they're cheap. Uh, be aware that they can be lazy tools. First, you don't always need dead parents.
0: Um,
1: there is a dead parent and a missing parent on Gustav's side of the equation, the Gustav Goon books. But Fernie, who is, the, again, the viewpoint character, has a living father and mother. The mother is a world traveler uh, for her job and comes back home rarely, but the father is the, the active uh, caretaker. But you don't need dead parents because, first of all, dead parents are easy, and, and you're removing a lot from your fiction that kids understand. I mean, kids have one thing that they're experienced with. Parents. And kids understand relationship with parents. They understand the frustrations of relationship with parents. They understand the parents who don't understand something that you're desperately trying to tell them. Good parents, uh, bad parents, there are lots of things you can do. If the kid gets separated from the parent at some point in the story and fights her way back to them, uh, as happens with uh, Dorothy Gale, Wants to get back to Kansas for God alone knows what reason. But she wants to get, she wants to get back to uh, her uncle and aunt, who are her de facto parents. This is something that you could work with, so I, I would avoid that. unless uh, just, just don't do it unthinkingly. Prophecies. Prophecies are lazy. Uh, when there are three stars in the sky on this day, this exact thing will happen. And on that day, the tyrant will be defeated well, then the rest of us don't have any reason to try until then. Prophecies, if you, if you can avoid prophecies or if you can say, in the course of my book I say, there's no such thing as a prophecy. No such thing doesn't happen, nor is the child the chosen one. I hate chosen ones with a passion. If there's a chosen one, then uh, there's no reason for anybody else to try. In reality, when there's a horrible evil that must be defeated, somebody just gets drafted, as Frodo got drafted. You get drafted, you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you're the one who has to deal with it, and you'd rather that you had a quiet life, you're the one who has to deal with it. That's wonderful. That's where the power is.
0: The text of this recording is copyright 2013 by Adam Troy Castro. The sound recording is copyright 2013 by Odyssey Writing Workshop's Charitable Trust.